Hello and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. I'm Jenny Rentis. I am here this week with Connor Orr, who is back from just one week off, welcoming a newborn. Connor posted a photo on his Twitter timeline. Congratulations to Connor. There is a new member of the Orr family. And <laughs> yay! So how's it going at the Orr household, Connor? It's going great. Everyone always uh, congratulates me. I would say that... Uh, you know, uh, I would do most of the congratulations to my wife, especially since the baby was over nine pounds. So I think most of the heavy lifting um, was done on that end. But everybody's great. Everybody's very happy and healthy. And, you know, I take more time off. But Roham was so good on the show last week that I can't I can't lose the seat, you know, so I have to you know, you have to stay active a little bit here. The dolphin noises were really the highlight. Shelby shined last week's episode as well. As always. You, as always. You said, Connor, that you were worried about getting Wally pipped, but I actually think I was worried the whole time. I was like, people are going to hear how good Rohan is. They're going to think that he should be paired with Connor, which would be a fantastic podcast. So I, he was an all-around great guest, Connor, and we are also happy to have you back. So just, uh, you know, Taysom Hill sliding in for Drew Brees, <laughs> you know. That kind of situation, right? I've always viewed my, yeah, I've always viewed it that way. Um, but just know that if they ever tried to replace you as the co-host, I would, I would stage a, a massive walkout uh, of, of the other half of the podcast. So uh, I wouldn't let that happen. Don't worry. Well, well, we're happy to be here talking football in December. Lots to discuss, as always. It's kind of wild that we've, I was just thinking about it with all the ups and downs this season. Um, there's been some rescheduling some bumps in the road, but for the most part, like here we are and the playoffs are on the horizon, which is kind of remarkable to think about. It really is incredible. And I would guess that, you know, these last two weeks have been the worst in terms of what they've had to move around and the changes that they've had to make. I think that um, after witnessing sort of the low wattage affair that was Steelers Ravens last week, which had to preempt the Rockefeller tree lighting, I think that <laughs> um, there was probably a sense that, you know, that is not the best product, right? That's not the best thing to put forward. The, the game was horrendous. Um, I don't think that both teams were were remotely prepared to play a game in those circumstances. But other than that, I don't think there has been a ton of these issues, right? Where the product has been, you know, relentlessly diluted because of the situation. That was really the only one to me that seems uh, borderline egregious to egregious, not to mention the, um, uh, the Broncos game as well, which I thought was pretty horrendous when they didn't have an actual quarterback to play with either. Yeah, absolutely. We've certainly seen some more extreme cases that were concerning in terms of player safety, uh, in terms of the psychological toll of are you playing a game and then having to go out there and, you know, be ready to play 60 minutes of football under very strange circumstances. So there are definitely, um, there are definitely parts of the season that are kind of hard to reconcile. Um, but here we are. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we expected, that this was going to be not a normal year. I did see that Mike Tomlin called the Steelers effort JV, and I would like to point out that not all JV efforts are bad. Um, I am a JV, so I am particularly <laughs> sensitive to <laughs> to that, you know, being substandard, that use of JV as being substandard. But you know what? Maybe I am substandard. So I used, I used to play really hard on the JV football yeah, team. Yeah, um, you know, JV can be good, so... I always got really upset when we had a new coach that came in my senior year and he said, okay, seniors are not allowed to play 
on JV anymore. That's the thing that I'm changing. And I was like, well, you know, well, then what am I going to do? Because I don't play. And so that was like kind of the fun part for me. And then I would tell people to come to my games and I just wouldn't specify. And I would tell them to come to the JV game because that's where I got in. But, you know, so I, I think, you know, Mike Tomlin, you know, a lot of these coaches grow up as hyper competitive athletes. They don't understand life on the other side there. You know, JV was a big deal for some of us. So. JV can serve a purpose and might not be at the highest <laughs> level, but it can still be something good. So <laughs> that would be a great tombstone for you. JV can serve a purpose. That's like JV a good... can serve a purpose. <laughs> I love All it. All right. Well, let's dive into the topics because the first one, we are bringing back a segment we haven't had since early in the season. So I'm very excited you reminded us about this, Connor. The New York football winter of despair takes an unexpected turn as the Giants upset the Seahawks in Seattle without Daniel Jones or Saquon Barkley, building on a winning streak that is now three games. Is there hope in New York, Connor? Wow. Um, yeah, I and it was pretty like wild because the week before, right, the Giants had this low wattage win over the Bengals. And but, you know, you saw some things, especially Joe Judge was coming right off the Golden Tate uh, controversy. He was coming right off the Mark Colombo firing in which there may or may not have been like an actual physical altercation in the building. And there was a lot of, you know, issues surrounding that. And I thought it's incredible that he got them to win that game in Cincinnati. Um, and, and I just mm-hmm. said, you know, maybe he's not going to win coach of the year, but let's at least talk about him. Like he's in the running, you know, third or fourth place, whatever it is. And then to go out and do what he did this week to beat Seattle on the road without your starting quarterback. I mean, this is, this is some pretty incredible coaching work right here. Yeah. Gary Gramling and I on the Monday morning show, were talking about just some of the players that have suddenly resurged and to win with those players, right? Colt McCoy, who had his own, um, somewhat disastrous uh, injury and was in the hospital room next to Alex Smith, required multiple surgeries. Uh, Alfred Morris, whose name we haven't heard yeah. in quite some time. They're winning with a lot of different pieces. Uh, Leonard Williams has really kind of come into his own after being traded from the Jets. And we saw a fantastic defensive effort schemed by defensive coordinator Patrick Graham, who really put together a fantastic game plan. It's not often that you see Russell Wilson sacked five times. They were really able to get pressure for a quarterback that it's hard to pressure. Um, And Graham is someone that teams looking for a head coach should consider. So it just seems like the Giants have really kind of started to put the pieces together and you know, it took a little time for them to find their groove, but things seem to be working. And some of the moves that Dave Gettleman has made over the last few years have been head scratchers, but th- things are kind of coming together nicely. And if he and Joe Judge can work together, then they may have a good future moving forward. It's so interesting to find ourselves in this place. And I think that, you know, if you're so many of these teams in the NFC East, you're more than happy to bottom out at this point because it doesn't matter. But the Giants are in a weird spot where, you know, Mm -hmm. yes, they need all the draft capital that they can get. But I think that this season would mean so much more to them from a building perspective if they actually made the playoffs. And yeah, sure, you might, you know, get blown out in the first round. But at the same time, you know, if you look, took all the teams in the NFC East right now, which team would you want to play the least in the playoffs right now? And I would say the Giants. They can control the ball. They can play good defense. And, you know, they're going to be playing a home game. So I I think that it's all kind of really interesting and and building in the right direction. And you make a good point on Dave Gettleman, too. I think that it's probably time for a fair 
reevaluation of everything that he's done to this point. I mean, this was a guy who was relentlessly hammered by myself included, you know, through a majority of the season with the way that he handled stuff. But, you know, it is, to quote him, starting to look and smell and taste like a good football team. So, Yeah, and I think you're spot on with the idea that going to the playoffs this season would mean something. It would mean that all of the work that Joe Judge has done to try to start building a program would have some payoff. Yeah, in the pandemic, that's exactly right. It's not an easy task to take a new head coaching job and start with a team with a virtual off-season program. Uh, You're getting to know the players in person, really, in training camp. Just a lot of challenges this year. And so if they could have a postseason game, it would really end the season on some positive energy that they could build off of in 2021. And also, I think that they would be the most entertaining of the NFC East teams to see in the playoffs. They are the team of the four that looks the best right now and would potentially have an entertaining postseason game. Yeah. I I was glad that you mentioned Patrick Graham, too, because I think that that is a guy who, uh, similar to some of the coaches that we've seen where they might fly a little bit under the radar and then all of a sudden during the coaching search cycle, they have three or four interviews and everybody's going to be like, oh, what? Wow. Where did that guy come from? I think Patrick Graham might be that guy this year. I think he's going to be a really interesting addition for teams like, you know, especially over the last few weeks if you talk to anybody about him it's just glowing reviews and the body of work certainly supports that i mean look at some of the how tough they've played some of these teams along the way i mean tampa bay and pittsburgh and you know that's a a lot of his doing behind the scenes there too yeah absolutely now there is still plenty of despair in florham park but connor we will get to that a little bit later in the show why don't we move on to topic number two All right, sounds good. The Eagles bench Carson Wentz on Sunday, and after a game, a sullen Doug Peterson refused to commit to Wentz right away as the team's starting quarterback. Jenny, we've seen this all before. Man falls in love with quarterback. Man wins Super Bowl with quarterback's help. All of a sudden, man stops returning quarterback's calls. Man designs special offense for another (laughs) younger quarterback, but insists he still loves his old quarterback. Sigh. Uh, This is all very sad, and it is. Uh, I, I think that Carson Wentz to me is sort of this like modern sports tragedy in that, you know, he goes 13 and three. And I know that you were along uh, the road with that team that year when he tore his ACL and then Nick Foles wins the Super Bowl. He gets him back into contention the next year. And then Nick Foles has to play in the playoffs. He gets the backs them in a third time, you know, uh, and then uh, Josh McCown has to take over when he gets a concussion against the Seahawks. He never was able to solidify himself as the guy. And then all of a sudden they have a bad season. The offensive lines out. There's no weapons. And the Eagles are saying, well, you know, lift us because you're the quarterback. He doesn't. And then he gets panic pulled against Green Bay. It's just I I I don't feel too, too bad for him. He's had it better than other quarterbacks, but I do think that this is sort of a sad trajectory anyway, right? Yeah, I agree, Connor. I remember watching him in the locker room after the Eagles won the Super Bowl and just wondering what was going through his head and also thinking that despite a a bumpy season and having the ACL injury and watching another quarterback win the Super Bowl, that he would have a chance to continue to have success in Philly. Their roster looked very complete. It looked like they had found you know, this great locker room culture that works, and they had found a coach that had an offensive system that was working, and it just felt like they had the pieces in place to kind of be a solid team for a while, especially in an NFC East that doesn't always have a lot of teeth. Um, but unfortunately for the Eagles, it's gone the other way, and 
Now they're in this weird spot where Jalen Hurts definitely gave the team a spark, but it wasn't perfect, and he still needs a lot of development. And you just wonder what will this do to his development if you continue to play him in less than ideal circumstances. There are so many things wrong with the Eagles right now, and Mm -hmm. certainly Carson Wentz has not been playing well, but he's not the only thing wrong. And that was always, in my opinion, the hesitation of going to Hurts because you have bad play calls. You have plays that are not executed as they should be designed. You have different people making mistakes. You have a problem at the receiver position, a, a thin position there. So it's just hard to imagine any quarterback succeeding right now while at the same time you say, okay, well, Wentz looks like he's not the answer. But it's just crazy to me to think that this team looked like it could be a sustainable powerhouse just a couple of years ago. And now it feels like, where do they go from here? Yeah, because I think based on Wentz's history, um, and there's always been whispers about his confidence, you know, and, you know, he didn't like looking over his shoulder when Nick Foles was there. I think there was a similar discomfort when Jalen Hurts was brought in. You know, he didn't like looking behind him then. If you were worried about his confidence, and I understand that you're doing a lot of things behind the scenes to make this a better situation for him, but I think you destroyed whatever was left against Green Bay. And not only by, you know, you could have gone to the podium after. Afterwards and said, you know, we were out of it and, you know, it didn't make sense to get Carson beat up. Um, and so I wanted to just get Jalen some reps. But mm-hmm. by saying explicitly that you needed a spark and that you got the spark, you're sing- you're signaling out, singling out one person, right? You're saying we did not have a spark because of Carson and we are having a spark because of Jalen. And that's the hard thing, I think, for you can't unring that bell as a coach once you ring that, you know? And what do you do now? Uh, That contract is immovable. You can't get out of that for at least another calendar year. Um, You're not going to trade Jalen Hurts. And so these guys are going to be on the roster together for another 365 days. That's going to be a really, really difficult um you know uh, situation to handle and that's all on on, of their own doing you know Mm -hmm. yeah also on this morning's podcast monday morning's podcast with gary grambling connor i was making a similar point about the money that they've already spent to connor uh to carson wentz and i somehow called it financial money which I have no idea where that phrasing came from. So it can become uh, our next running bit, you know, that financial uh, money, a lot of financial money committed to uh, Carson Wentz for the Eagles. So do you, do you remember like when you took high school econ, there was, there's a, there was a phrase called fiat money. Do you remember fiat money? I don't. Okay. Wait, the, like one means like real money for goods and services. And then, one means like theoretical money. Okay, okay. F- fiat money is currency that a government has declared to be legal tender, but it is not backed by a physical commodity. Okay, so um, we just I think all thought that was funny, and so for like a year's period of time, my friends and I just referred to all money as fiat money. Um, oh man. Okay, so like really, our brains must be on the same wavelength totally. all of the time, Connor, because I think that's what I was trying to say this morning. Yeah, as scary money. as that sounds for the rest of the world that we we might just be hyperlinked in that way, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's I what mean, makes the podcast so good. I don't know. You know, I think it does. We can finish each other's sentences. We always have the same opinions on things. <laughs> really like bird teams, although yeah. it's not really the best run for a lot of bird teams at this point in time. So, And we're, you know, I, I sent Jenny a... Uh, a 
vegetarian recipe uh, the other day from the Sunday Times. And, you know, Jenny was in on the healthy eating thing long before I do. But I think the diets are linking up too. where I'm I'm starting to see things that uh, she might have picked out at the uh, old magazine cafeteria, for example, or something <laughs> like that. And, and I'm starting to kind of build that in uh, to the diet as well. So, I mean, it's all just, uh, you know, part of the process to becoming one football powerhouse reporter, you know, conjoined. Very right. Exciting. What, what do they say? Uh, head coach, general manager aligned, Connor, you That's and right. I are aligned. So <laughs> always good for building a successful team. Totally. Have your head coach and GM aligned. All right. I'm really excited to read topic number three. <laughs> the Browns are nine and three. They are guaranteed to have a winning record and are in very, very strong position for their first playoff berth since 2002. I believe the odds are like 97%. Mm-hmm. And I believe a young Connor Orr invited all of his little friends over to watch that playoff game in 2002. Did. Okay, which the Browns lost. So I want to hear a little bit more about that, but I also will pose the question, can these Browns not only play in the postseason, but make some noise? We were working on a social studies project together, but, uh, you know, I wanted everybody to kind of wear their jerseys and, you know, because I had been wearing my Tim Couch jersey to school for two <laughs> years now. And I was like, you know, you get made fun of and uh, and everybody thinks it looks ridiculous. But now it was time, you know, and I had friends that were, you know, we're living in northeastern Pennsylvania and my friends are, you know, puffing their chest as 49ers fans and, and Dolphins fans and Cowboys fans, which are just ridiculous. And they were just bandwagons of another era. And so, you know, I tried to kind of position myself as as somebody who, you know, made a bold decision, stuck <laughs> with it. And now here we are uh, seeing the zenith of this um, Kelly Holcomb and Bruce Arians as our offensive coordinator and a fiery Butch Davis on the sidelines. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, it didn't work out. I think they played the Steelers <laughs> pretty tough. Um, my dad ordered us pizza. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is what it is now. It, these are better times now. Like, I think now is a better time to be a Browns fan than it yeah. was in 2002. Yeah. That was a tough loss, but this was a really big win for the Browns. Huge. They Huge. had finally beaten a team that looked like it was a contender. That was the big question about Cleveland this season was, well, have they beaten anyone good? And when they played good teams, they didn't seem like the best version of themselves, but They contained Derrick Henry. Baker Mayfield had the highest passer rating of his career. Uh, Just felt like everything was working for Cleveland. And it was a good sign that uh, they really could be a team that can play with the league's best. Yeah, so there was about two minutes left in the game. And so I I called up um, Pumpkinhead. Uh, who, if ever, anyone who watches Browns games, there's a man who goes to Browns games uh, all the time. He's their super fan, and he wears a pumpkin on his head. That's sort of his thing, uh, and he's been doing it since like 2002 or 2003 or whatever it is. And um, he had a funny line in that he said, I knew the second that they banned tailgating, and limited the capacity of the fans in the stands. This was going to be the year that we were good because then none of us could actually see it in person. Like it's it's still it's a <laughs> it's a great year, but it is uniquely Brownsian. And the fact that like we can't enjoy it at all, uh, you know, and it's yeah. set against the backdrop of this horrendous time and you know all this stuff. But you know, it, 
that said, it's it's just stunning to me. Like I, I wanted to make this a topic because, you know, forget about the playoffs, forget about the fact that they convinced clinched the winning record. This is the first time they've made it this deep into the season without some sort of massively embarrassing palace intrigue, firing a head coach, burning out a number one draft pick, you know, like something wildly stupid, you know, and like this team could not stop shooting themselves in the foot year in and year out. And like, what have we heard about the Browns this year? Like nothing, you know? And yeah, like, when does that happen? It's, it's, it's stunning to me that, and that I think might be the biggest lift that Kevin Stefanski's brought, or maybe it's him and uh, Paul D. Podesta working together since we know D. Podesta kind of singled him out as the coaching candidate that he wanted. But man, I mean, what a difference it makes when everybody kind of gets along and you're winning. It's just stunning to me that, you know, we're not looking at Cleveland and, you know, the GM's texting the offensive coordinator and getting fired or Johnny Manziel is rambling through the building and, you know, all this stuff. It's just, it, it seems like it was years ago, but really uh, up until last year, they were a uh, giant hot mess. Yeah. And for all of the turnover that Baker Mayfield has had with coaches and offensive mm-hmm. coordinators, his promising start really got stunted. And he certainly has had bumpy games this year where there were questions, is he really the guy? Um, but it sometimes takes a while to get used to a system. And I think Kevin Stefanski has really built something around Baker that he can thrive in and maybe it's all starting to come together for them. Yeah. That deep uh, touchdown to uh, people's Jones or whatever uh, yesterday or Sunday um, was incredible. And that like, you know, they're scoring 70 yard passing touchdown plays in max protect. Like they only have one receiver on the field and this guy is getting open for a 70 yard touchdown. Like that's scheme. And uh, that's people obviously respecting uh, Nick Chubb in the running game and the offensive line, of course. But I mean, he's doing a great job. I mean, there's there's really not a whole lot to dislike about that. And as a follow up, uh, I have a Baker Mayfield hot take, which okay. is that he is very funny on the progressive commercials. Like, I think he's I think he's very funny. Like, I think he gets it. And I think that if he flames out, he uh, has a career in television. Like I, I very much enjoy his character acting. The dad shtick that he has, where the Brown Stadium is his house, I really, right. enjoy, I really enjoy it. Okay, I think you're the first person I've <laughs> talked to who enjoys the bit, but I'm, I'm not going to judge. Uh, I think the book club one, the of book all club of is the, very funny. That one is the best one. Um, you know, okay, the, the turkey one didn't you know where he's you know checking the turkey and you know he's very ignorant to the fact that everybody's hungry but all he cares about is perfectly browning the turkey and then he says okay well give everybody all 20 of my guests one pretzel like i think he kind of nails it a little bit i think he's fine okay okay i'm in so it's kind of a peyton manning-esque you know good in commercials type of personality as well well i would say I, I never said Peyton Manning was good in commercials. So well, Peyton Manning's <laughs> good in commercials. He has good comedic timing. You think if you had to stack up Peyton Manning's comedic timing with Brad Paisley against <laughs> Baker Mayfield's, <laughs> you would put Peyton Manning ahead of Baker Mayfield? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I, I don't I think see, I've well, ever... D- 
I, I don't think I've ever disagreed with you more on anything. I was going to say, wow, this is a, <laughs> we were just talking a couple of minutes ago about how we're aligned and now, I'm, you know, now we seem to have some major philosophical differences. So maybe it's uh, best that we move on to topic four, Connor. What do we have? Yeah, let's, let's get the show back on the ropes here. Uh, the flip side of the lifting of some of the despair for New York football the Jets are still, as of this podcast, one of the NFL's 32 teams the last time we checked, is that the Seahawks have stumbled since their 5-0 start. What happened to Wilson's MVP campaign, and what, aside from some high-heat grapeseed oil, can get him cooking again? Nice. I did okay, not I see like that, that when you sent the uh, topics. That is great. Are you I really cook- thought that was up your alley. Are you cooking with grapeseed oil these days? I-, I have it around in the house. I use it sometimes. Uh, I use it for scallops. Nice. What's your like go-to neutral oil? Olive oil. Olive oil. Yeah. I've been doing avocado a lot because I have a really old electric stove and it's either you have to cook things at 600 degrees or just not cook them at all. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's sort of where the difficulty comes in. And avocado oil has a high smoke point. And so I like that, you know, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't good mess choice, up the house. Connor. Yeah. Good great, choice. Great reference though to grapeseed oil. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I mean, Patrick Graham certainly has a lot to do with, with mm-hmm. what we saw on Sunday. Um, but these have been a couple weeks in a row now where, you know, and, and, and maybe it's not unexpected, right? If you start out as hot as the Seahawks did, you're going to hit this wall. Um, but the problem is they're almost kind of burning themselves out of playoff contention a little bit, you know, and so they really need to revive themselves. And that's where I think the trouble comes in. Do you have confidence in someone like Brian Schottenheimer to be able to fix this situation? Mm-hmm. The way that they were playing earlier in the season, it had to be unsustainable, though at the time I didn't really see that. It just everything was clicking. And even though the defense had flaws, I thought maybe they'd figure it out a little bit as the season went on. But unfortunately, what's happened for the Seahawks is that the offense has really cooled. And there were certainly offensive line issues. They were on a reserve right tackle, for instance. So a lot of challenges for the Seahawks. But it just feels like they, whatever level they were performing at earlier in the season they just kind of maxed out there and it's been kind of a slide ever since. It's the ultimate sort of thing. I mean, you know, you can never assume permanence in any way, shape or form in the NFL, but now even we can't assume permanence over the course of one singular season. Maybe the Ravens right. were the last team that I think dominated with an offense from the start of the year to the end of the year and were hard to stop right up until they lost um, in the playoffs. But, you know, even Kansas City didn't play that well against Denver, um, you know, on Sunday night or Sunday night football. And, you know, but this is especially concerning because this was the year that I think, you know, if you're Seattle, you've kind of put a lot of resources into this. You know, this is another one of these good seasons where everybody's not too expensive and everything's affordable and you can kind of put the pieces together. But if they're if they don't do it this year, I think that the division maybe quickly passes them by because the Rams aren't getting any worse. The 49ers are going to reload with a better quarterback next year and be even harder to stop. And the Cardinals are one of the best young teams in the NFL. Yeah. And I think it just feels like the lack of run game too. You know, we're kind of always waiting for them to play the way that they used to with Marshawn Lynch. And that just hasn't happened. Yeah. 
it's it's so weird. Like uh, it's a big hit. You know, our our bird teams in general have just oh, been the bird teams really struggling. I mean, rough week. Yeah. In general, I mean, you know, it's just been like we had such high hopes. I mean, I had the Falcons in the playoffs. I had the mm-hmm. Seahawks in the Super Bowl. We had the Eagles winning the division. Um, Cardinals coming on strong, which that was the only one we really hit on, you know? Yeah, and they've yeah. really slowed in, in recent weeks as well. Um, other than that, Hale Murray, it's been a rough stretch for the Cardinals. As so. evidenced by, you know, Kyler Murray is is my fantasy quarterback, and we're barely hanging on. We're the sixth seed. Uh, you know, the playoffs are decided this week. Uh, I don't know if we're going to sneak in. Um, and by the way, Andy Reid, like, you know, Clyde Edwards Alaire, if he's going to have the flu, he's going to, you know, you got to let us know that. You know, you can't just, you know, let him, let us stick him in there. You know, that was a little bit scary yesterday, too. But well, seeing as I'm out of playoff contention, <laughs> if you just want to do a one for one quarterback swap, I do have Mahomes <laughs> on my roster. So maybe we could talk about a deal, Connor. Just kidding. Don't worry. We're not colluding. There was a time when I colluded. Jenny and I did not collude, but I took it upon myself to damage an opponent of hers before the playoffs. And then I got yelled at by the commissioner. So I had to undo (laughs) the damage. I was out of the playoffs and Jenny was facing somebody who, whose quarterback had gotten injured and needed to pick up a quarterback. So I just went through and picked up and dropped all the quarterbacks so that they would uh, sit on the waiver wire and he couldn't get anybody. And uh, that drew some, the ire of the rest of the league on that. <laughs> I one. didn't sanction it. It you was something you chose it. to do on your own. Correct. That but, was a, um, uh, a free radical. So, but, you know, but you, but you corrected it. It didn't have any impact on that week's games, but uh, it is a good memory, Connor. <laughs> you still you got know. the W. So that's you all know. that matters. <laughs> all right. Topic number five. It looks like there could be a fair number of head coach openings this year, Connor, in addition to Houston, Atlanta, and Detroit, which are already vacant. Who are some of the names we should be keeping an eye on as top candidates in the coming weeks? This is something you've written a little bit about recently. Yeah, and so we actually have uh, a, a kind of what you, whatever you want to call it, a Black Monday primer um, that I'm uh, writing this week too. So that'll be exciting. And, you know, even though there's a, there's a gloomy part of it, there are people who are, you know, kind of losing their jobs. There is going to be some new regimes. And I think that's always exciting for for fans to get a hold of. And I think the one name that everybody's kind of circulating already and I think makes a lot of sense is one that we might see off fly off the board rather quickly is Robert Sala, um, the defensive coordinator of the 49ers. And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the Michigan state legislators actually lobbying the Lions um, ownership to hire him. And I know that that's sort of a joke uh, that goes along with um, that candidacy. But I've actually heard that there there is sort of a buzz growing there because the Lions are hyper-focused on personality and, you know, getting some of these fans back and getting their locker room back. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think that that's a really attractive thing um, that Robert Sala brings to the table. Um, and then obviously, I mean, you have your Eric B enemies. I, I think this is the year for him to get a job. I would hope that this is a year for him to get a job. But as you mentioned earlier in the show, Patrick Graham, I think is going to surprise some people. I think that Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator of the Rams is going to come on strong. Um, Brian Dable from the bills and Leslie Frazier is another kind of second chance name that I think is going to get some run there. So I think this is going to be a fun off season. Um, but uh, it's going to be really interesting because it's all going to be affected by COVID too. And, you know, a lot of these coaches you've done a, 
excellent story on preparing for these head coaching interviews. And now the parameters have sort of changed because you're going to try to make the same impression virtually, um, which you might not have been able to, you know, we hear a lot about commanding the room and your presence, but what do you do when you're not present, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting wrinkle to the process. And these interviews are often very long, five, six hours. So imagine doing that on Zoom. But listen, we're conducting business a lot of ways. Zoom can be uh, just fine. We are currently bargaining for our contract at Sports Illustrated, and we're doing that via Zoom. So there's a lot of times when you thought you'd be in some kind of boardroom setting, but you're actually doing it virtually. Uh, A few other names that come to mind, and Todd Bowles, you know, I think what he did with the Jets, especially after the struggles the Jets have had under Adam Gase. Um, looking back, Bowles was really doing a good job, and he's done a good job in Tampa Bay with the Buccaneers defense. Uh, Jim Caldwell is another person who, the person who came in after him, their struggles and failures really highlighted the job that he had been doing mm-hmm. with the Lions before they fired him and hired Matt Patricia. Another name I've heard come up is Tony Elliott, the offensive coordinator of Clemson. Maybe he'd be looking for a college job, but there's been some success of college coaches going to the NFL, Matt Rule, last year. So I wonder if that's a name that that gets a chance um, to interview. So I think there's a lot of intriguing candidates this year. And I also know the NFL has done a lot of work to help build the networks for candidates of color and help, you know, make sure that owners are not just looking for a person who they are quote unquote familiar with or comfortable with, which is often somebody who looks like them, but keeping in mind what criteria are actually important. And another name too, Raheem Morris has done a really good job with the Falcons. I mean, you know, it comes in mid season, a tough situation and had a bunch of wins that they weren't expected to get. So those are some names that I expect to be in the mix as well. No doubt. Um, what about openings? I mean, we have Detroit, Atlanta, and Houston are the openings mm-hmm. um, that we know of. I would say I would categorize the other two that feel inevitable at this point as being the Jets and the Chargers, right? And and that brings us to five. And then maybe you know you would you would put in the wild card category there maybe the Bears and the Eagles. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds right. Also, Jacksonville. Oh, Jacksonville, of course. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's always one that just slips your slips your mind when you're trying to come up with these lists, and there's always a surprise opening as well. So, um, yeah. can you imagine having like eight or eight like a quarter of the NFL, you know, turning over again? That would be really fascinating, you know. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see um, how the unusual circumstances of this year affect the number of openings or if they have any impact at all, maybe, maybe it doesn't. You brought up a good point about the NFL building a pipeline for minority coaches and, and sort of doing what they can to rectify what has become sort of that old boys network. But uh, one of the interesting things that I've heard throughout the process is that I think this year in particular, you've seen minority coaches flourish amid a, a bunch of very difficult situations, not nonetheless being you know, connecting with their players at a time when, you know, social injustice and racial inequality and all this stuff comes to the foreground. I think people notice that, you know, and I think that uh, the prediction was that owners would notice that, right? And they would think that, okay, you know, we're finally getting it now that we need 
coaches who can not only lead people, but can deftly handle situations in these times, you know, and you look at, you know, Brian Flores was the first coach um, who like stepped out and said, you know, I'm, I've got my players backs on this and we're, this is how we're going to handle these situations. And then you saw everybody else fall into line and look how well everything has gone in Miami this year. I think that maybe you're seeing a little bit of a shifting of the tide in the fact that, you know, owners are, you know, recognizing a little bit of the fallacy of their logic in the past. And they're saying, okay, we can't continue to just hire these people who are friends of friends, but are entirely out of touch with the large majority of their football team. Yeah. I hope that the criteria has shifted a little bit uh, in terms of identifying people who can lead in a lot of different capacities. And um, certainly there have been efforts to change thinking on that and to expand hiring processes and interviews and sort of, you know, make the checklist that owners have long had for a while that can be problematic, make those a little bit broader in scope. So it'll, it'll be um, another interesting thing to keep an eye on is if there will be an impact of that work. Um, because last year was really a disappointing hiring cycle for candidates of color. Um, will there have been an impact uh, this year? Or, you know, it's something that might take a little bit longer. So um, that's another thing to keep an eye on just to kind of track that. So definitely. All right, Connor, we had a different segment last week with Rohan here, which <laughs> I love. But this week we are back to the Oracle. All right. Um, so earlier today, uh, as right before we started taping the show, actually, um, I call it the I call it the Gruden special, which is that we heard uh, sort of the first uh, it's like when a politician begins to explore running for office, you know, they sort of lay the oh. groundwork and they sort of put the uh, track, they put the tracks down. Um, and that was Bill Cower, Right. And we heard um, Boomer Esiason on WFAN, who's a close friend of Cowher's who works with Bill Cower every Sunday, say that Cower has mentioned many times the attractiveness of the Jets job to him personally, um, that he's in the area, that his wife was always a Jets fan, you know, that all the stuff and what that meant to him. And so I, I, I don't know. I would say that I would, my Oracle prediction is that it is just that, right? It is an interesting thing to talk about, much like it was for John Gruden the nine times that he did that before he actually ended up taking a job, right? Um, but uh, I, I do not see a Bill Cower, you know, takeover in New York, uh, especially this is going to be such a pivotal hire for the Jets. I mean, mm -hmm. theoretically, if they don't deal the Trevor Lawrence pick, I mean, they're going to have to be so spot on with everything. Um, you know, they're going to have to nail this. And whoever comes in is going to have to have an extensive amount of connections, is going to be able have to be able to pull the best offensive coordinators, is going to have to be able to lobby ownership for a bigger salary pool for their coaches. Like, this is going to have to be a Herculean effort. And I don't, you know... I wouldn't put anything past Bill Cower, but I just don't know. Are, you know, if you've been out of the game for that long, are you ready to come in and and not only be Bill Cower, but you have to almost be, you know, uh, like John Calipari esque, right? Like there's there's got to be like a little bit of grease to this too. I mean, you're really going to have to do some do some work on this job. Yeah, it would be very rare for a coach to be out for that long. Obviously, you gave the example of Gruden, and that's one, but it would certainly be rare. Um, and there would be some in, 
some risk to that for what, as you correctly described, is a pivotal hire. You know, they had Todd Bowles, they moved on to Adam Gase, hasn't worked out. Gase was brought in with the quarterback in mind, and that certainly didn't go the way that anyone had hoped. So they really have to get this right because, uh, you know, if things work out and Trevor Lawrence doesn't try to execute a power play, this is a talent that evaluators have been eager to see in the NFL for a while. I mean, he was projected as a top prospect as a true freshman. Um, So you can't mess that up. So you have to find the right guy. Um, And you also have to find a person who is willing to coach at the Jets, um, which makes that uh, challenge a little bit harder. Obviously, there's appeal of coaching Trevor Lawrence, but the Jets organization has not had a history of being run well and so <laughs> yeah. to, to put it mildly and so you're asking uh, you're trying to recruit a top candidate but there's a lot of limitations for that job as well you know it's the, you know i thought about this a lot um since this story has come out and i think that the one parallel and i think that it's been an interesting trend in football is that you're seeing these sort of figurehead coaches come back into the game with a limited role right and what they do is they hire star coordinators and star young coaches who basically run the ship right and we've seen that at north carolina where mac brown came back out of retirement and hired absolute stud coordinators and actually has the program trending in the right direction herm edwards went back to arizona state and did something similar it seems like Deion sanders is trying to do the same thing with his uh you know high uh, the college job that he just got in florida as well you know could that be something of a of sort of a trend for Bill Cowher to fall, fall into that? But it's so much harder to sustain at the NFL because one season of good coordinating gets you a head coaching job normally, you know, and it's just not a sustainable pace, you know. But uh, I don't know. I think it's uh, – I would be surprised. I don't know. I, w- I, I would be shocked if Bill Cowher is a head coach again. Interesting point, Connor. I absolutely agree with you, and I think it was a good topic to bring up for this week's Oracle. And now we will conclude with the Brentus Consensus. Consensus. So we promised we would talk about Greg Williams and that horrible call at the end of the Jets game, which ultimately resulted in Williams being fired by the Jets the next day following the loss to the Raiders. The Jets could have won. Certainly all the players and the coaches on the field were trying to win. Nobody wants to be part of an 0-16 team. While Trevor Lawrence is the prize, if you have the number one seed, uh, that's a matter for the organization. But the people who are on the field are trying to win games. All of their jobs are on the line. And so the Jets had a chance to win, the chance to beat the Raiders. All they had to do was play a simple defense where you protect the end zone, you protect the sidelines, you force the Raiders to complete a pass somewhere in the middle of the field, tackled inbounds, game is over. Instead, George Greg Williams, excuse me, rushed seven players, full out blitz, and Henry Ruggs scores the winning touchdown. He's matched up one-on-one with cornerback Lamar Jackson, who hesitates a little bit. Ruggs gets past him. There is no safety help, and the game is over. And so the point to take away from this is that coaches just need to stop outsmarting themselves. And I think this is what has made Bill Belichick successful, is that you don't always do the same thing every week. 
you don't try to do what's cutest or you don't try to be clever. You just do what has the best chance of succeeding on any given play. So while William's style may be to blitz, and that is what he's known for, that is his calling card, did not make sense to do that in this situation. That was not the play call that would give the greatest odds of success. Um, and I think this is a persistent problem in coaching. You know, I think sometimes coaches want to make a name for themselves um, by they're the guy who has a certain style. They're the blitzing defensive coordinator, or they're the offensive coordinator that comes up with all these trick plays. And that never ends up well. It always ends up when you're just trying to outsmart yourself and it has a negative outcome most of the time. So I guess the takeaway for this week's Francis Consensus, Connor, is to just do the thing as a coach that puts your players in the best chance to succeed on that play and therefore win the game. All right, that is my... Rant, that is the final word on Greg Williams for this season. And um, the Jets season was over long ago, but uh, that really just was, that was really something to behold. And you could see the players' frustration in their comments after the game. So we are very glad to have Connor back for this week's episode. He's a new member of the family. And I know that there is probably a baby to go take care of. Pretty amazing that Connor is back recording with us this week. And we will all be together for next week's episode of the Weekside Podcast. As always, feel free to write in to us at weeksidepod at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners. The Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Marivic is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.